We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome into the RotoWire Fantasy Football Podcast. I'm your host, John McKechnie, joined as always by Mario Puig. A quick guest appearance from Dulce there uh, a moment ago. I hope to see Dulce again on the pod. Anywho, we've got a lot to get to today. Mario has been recapping the offseason for every team in the NFL. Two-part series up on the site right now. We're going to dive into that. A little bit of rookies that are trending downward as we head towards the end of the pre-draft process. Let's get it rolling. Welcome back in to the Roadwire Fantasy Football Podcast, again brought to you by our friends over at WinBet. If you're joining us live on the live stream, thank you very much. If you're catching this in audio form later, welcome as well. Mario, we got a lot to get to today. Um, you know, I, I thought one of the more interesting things about your your article series, breaking down the off-seasons for each teams, is, you know, so much of the oxygen of this off-season has been sucked up by a, such a small uh, number of moves, you know, the, the Packers with Aaron Rodgers returning, but Devonte Adams leaving the, the Seahawks beginning their fire sale and kicking in into rebuild mode. The AFC West getting ridiculously strong Deshaun Watson going to Cleveland so that there's just has been so much taken up as far as like the energy and attention span that, that we can really uh, give to this that, you know, some other teams are flying a little bit under the radar and, you know, other teams have maybe not made a splash in free agency because of, of, you know, cap restrictions and things of that nature, just kind of where they are in their window, in their timeline, one way or the other. But I wanted to start off with a team that I think really no one seems to be talking a whole lot about other than making some jokes on Twitter because of their, their signing of Andy Dalton yesterday. That's the New Orleans Saints. You know, this is a team that, that, you know, last year they couldn't really get things figured out in, in year one without Drew Brees. Now they're, now they're into year two. Now they don't have Sean Payton either. They brought back Jameis Winston, Michael Thomas, we think is going to be back, but you know, in, in what form and they, you know, they lose Teron Armstead, a bunch of other things happening in new Orleans. And it doesn't feel like anyone is really offering much of a take as far as what direction and what to expect uh, when it comes to the saints. So uh, get, give me your thoughts here. Yeah, they're a weird team. Uh, it doesn't look like they'll have a strong team exactly, but you're right. There hasn't been much chatter about them, and there might be you know, a little bit more to say. 
than what has been because with Thomas, a guy like him, it's kind of like either he's playing and he's probably, I don't know, uh, in PPR anyway, I guess probably like a top eight kind of receiver or something. Or I feel like he must not be playing or he must be playing for a different team or something because on this team, almost no matter who the quarterback is uh, and Winston, I think definitely is good enough. Uh, there's just going to be so much usage for Thomas specifically, uh, especially if Kamara gets suspended for any amount of time for that offseason assault thing, which sounds, I think, kind of insane and not so great for him. Uh, so Thomas is going to have to get a ton of usage because Callaway, you know, good as he was last year, uh, you know, stepping up in a, you know, short notice, you know, task of taking over for one of the most voluminous receivers in the league. Uh, he, he did okay. But that's not really a role that suits him. He's more he's he's more properly utilized as kind of a peripheral player. So Thomas could get right back into the conversation as one of the top receivers. And I don't know if it's we're all just kind of scared that he's going to disappear or do some crazy thing again like last year. Uh, But it it seems like it hasn't really been uh, specifically discussed. Uh, The most interesting thing, though, maybe aside from, you know, Thomas's return and Kamara's general situation, um, Taysom Hill, it sounds like they're almost formally declaring him a tight end now. And uh, I don't even remember like if they listed him as quarterback or offensive weapon or something obnoxious like that before. But if he has tight end eligibility, that's kind of interesting, I think. Uh, not that he would not that he's likely to be like a you know top fantasy tight end, and, and certainly there's risk there. But you know, this guy is at 230 pounds coming out of BYU. He was running like the 446. So if he's only running a four five five right now, and he, especially if he can run that kind of number at two thirty plus in an offense that only otherwise has Thomas Kamara and Callaway really uh, drawing usage, there might be room for Hill to you know give you something like I don't know, uh, you know forty catches or something. And in fantasy, maybe he he stays useful in twelve team leagues because he still gets some wildcat carries or something like that. So uh, it's kind of interesting. I feel like he's uh, he was a bad quarterback. Uh, contract, of course, he, that, that was a bad idea by the Saints, but Taysom Hill has always been able to run with the ball. Yeah, the, no question there. I mean, just dominant at, at BYU as far as those fa- the fantasy production what was concerned, and, and you know, the athletics checked out as well. The, the question, you know, uh, outside of the, the actual quarterback play coming out of BYU was just, you know, how long is he going to be able to play in the NFL, given how many kind of season-ending injuries that, that he did have did um, he break his leg like three times or something? I mean, it was it was ridiculous. I mean, it, it would be like every year. I know you you were uh, the main me- uh, manager for our college football stuff at the time, and he'd always be near the top of the ranks. And then you know, three weeks into the season, up. Oh, well, that's that's yeah, that's gone now. We'd always project him for like seven games instead of twelve, and he'd still rank as like the fourth quarterback in the, the <laughs> yeah. points. Yeah, so really dynamic player, and I think I think you make an interesting point to like keep him on your radar. Um, you know, I, I think that we're starting to see a little bit more top end depth as far as tight end goes. But, you know, the more that we see uh, these these leagues that use or where you have to start two tight ends, you know, he'll become someone that you definitely need to pay attention to. Um, as a corollary to that, d- does that mean that Adam Troutman is kind of just, uh, you know, damaged goods at this point, someone that you're not super interested in moving forward? I think Troutman might still be a good player, including as a pass catcher, including in fantasy. But 
the the main reason for that is that he plays a different position than Taysom Hill will. You know, there's the there's a true inline tight end position, one that maybe demands more blocking than some of the tight end positions that have you line up in the slot more often or even far outside more often and you know keep your your pass blocking responsibilities limited. Troutman is not that category. Troutman's the one where all the dirty work there is to do, he's going to get left with it. So the question is, does he still get enough targets even aside from that dirty work? And is he, you know, good enough with those targets to stay in the conversation and fantasy? And I think it's possible since Hill will not truly overlap with him, you know, like they'll, if, if Hill is on the field, it's not once going to be to take a rep from Troutman. Like it's, it's just, a, it's like offensive linemen on that team are going to steal more reps from Troutman than Hill will. But uh, yeah, the question of whether there's still enough room for Troutman, I guess, uh, comes down to like how much of a share does Hill take, and I guess Callaway Smith to a lesser extent, and then also how much, uh, how big is the pie that they have with with Jameis Winston at quarterback? And I could see it going, you know, a few different ways. I mean, even when he was bad with the Buccaneers, Jameis had a way of, you know, chucking and piling up numbers. So maybe he can still do that even without Peyton there, but. Yeah, the the really clean Winston numbers from last year seem unlikely to continue. That just doesn't seem like him. No, I I, I definitely agree there. Our viewer Scott uh, chimes in saying Taysom will never be a blocker if he's in. He's running routes. Yeah, we we tend to agree with that for the most part. That's not the optimal usage for him, especially when you have a guy like Troutman who can kind of handle more of that dirty work. In regards to Callaway, you know we he had never really had that prominent role before last season. Like you said, he gets thrust into it. You know, Michael Thomas, it it just, you know, the whole thing just kind of cratered on itself in in a lot of ways and all the quarterback injuries, everything like that. But if Thomas is back and let's assume that he's 85% of what he was at, at, you know, his prime back in what, 2018, 2019, um, then does that open things up for, for Callaway? And do you think that Callaway's play style is something that, that meshes well with, with Jameis to where like if he's getting six, seven targets a game and not being super heavily relied upon, but being used in the way that is best for him a little bit more downfield, do you think that he's someone that you'd be interested in? It's tough because Callaway can do some things. I, he's definitely a useful player, but I kind of worry maybe he's a little more useful in real life then in fantasy, and uh, he has certain limitations that, that kind of cut off upside scenarios. Like, for instance, he's – I know he did okay as kind of like the number one receiver for the Saints last year, and that included some, you know, underneath some intermediate stuff. But at Tennessee, he was pretty much like a sideline and downfield guy. Like, Jawan Jennings uh, was in the middle of the field leading the offense. Uh, Josh Palmer was also there. Uh, but – it wasn't Callaway who was the lead receiver. He was kind of like a role player, even in that offense. And he was outside and running downfield, but he's not a fast player by NFL standards. So that style of play that he had at Tennessee, always on the sideline, always downfield, that's not really going to cut it. Cause he just, he doesn't run away from people like that. So um, he, he's, he's not dominant as, as in the one area where I feel like he has, um, sorry, he's not, he's not very athletically gifted in the area where he's actually the most skilled. Like I don't, I don't really see him turning into a hundred catch slot receiver, you know? So I think he's just a role player, just a glue guy. Okay. And then uh, Scott also wants to know what the offense might look like early in the season. If Kamara is ultimately suspended for two, three games. 
Uh, yeah, I, don't, I mean, I guess Ingram, whoever's there, is going to have to play quite a bit. And uh, Pete Carmichael, I think, is still the offensive coordinator there, and he was technically like the assistant head coach, quarterback coach under Sean Payton. Um, he maybe can kind of just run the same sort of scheme as Payton. I don't, I have no idea what to expect there. I don't really know enough about Carmichael, but uh, if they do run what has been the Sean Payton type offense, then yeah, some running back is going to have to get, you know, it's, it's maybe two running backs is going to have to do quite a bit of work because uh, there's just, there's no way to imagine the Saints Payton offense without Kamara, you know, leading the way. Yeah, it'll. Yeah, that's going to be tough, depending on the on the length of that suspension for for the Saints to to get off to to the hot start. Um, let's move on over. Let's get to Seattle, and I know a lot has been made of the Denver side of, of the Russell Wilson trade, but you know th- things are things are st- you know still developing in Seattle. They've got additional draft capital now. How do you see? You know their their path forward now that a, a rebuild is, is incoming. You know they still have Pete Carroll, which is kind of an interesting choice if you want to kind of really press That's the hard reset button. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know putting putting it nicely uh, to say the least. But you know you, you still have DK Metcalf. He's been you know tossed around in a lot of trade rumors. Same for, same for Tyler Lockett. They bring back Penny, uh, who obviously had a, had a really strong end to his season. Probably helped a lot of people over the hump in their fantasy leagues in the playoffs. But you know what, what's going on in, in Seattle? What 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 do you make overall with with their off season moves? And and do, do you see a cohesive plan based on based on what they've done? Huh. Well, I don't want to like count out Pete Carroll teams because he's he's one of those coaches where he's he's got a lot of bad ideas and some things he does just are bewildering, you know. But he's also one of those coaches whose teams always show up every game, and some of these other coaches who maybe are a little bit smarter, you know, generally, and certainly with uh, math and probability and analytics and whatever else, maybe they're smarter than Carroll, but they'll still manage to lose to his teams a bunch of times because they always show up and other teams don't. Um, so I don't want to make it sound like they're a pushover team exactly, but they their roster sucks. Like they, they have to overachieve just to be like a pest level team, you know, not then the, like, the possibility of them actually winning games, I think is just out of the question. It, it's like an absurd, uh, it's an absurd scenario to imagine. Uh, they have no talent on defense. It's just blown up. Like they're not going to be able to stop anybody. Uh, so in, in, with all that noted, switching from Russell Wilson to Drew Locke or whatever else, and still probably trying to run a Pete Carroll offense sounds to me like, I, I don't know. It's, it's just absurd to think about. Like if they're, this defense can't stop anybody on the ground or through the air. And yet the Seahawks are going to have to just because they can't throw the ball with a quarterback like this, they're going to have to try to run the ball, you know, well into the third quarter. So they're going to have games where they're probably down two scores with less than five minutes left in the third quarter. And, you know, Chris Carson and Rashad Penny are having already combined for like 30 carries in the game are pushing for 40 going into the fourth quarter. Uh, it's like they, they'll just run the clock out on themselves and lose that much faster, but that that's the best option they have. They, they can lose quickly or, or, or uh, slowly. So uh, they try to throw the ball. It's going to be slow. You know, Drew Locke's going to turn it over. He can't do anything. I don't, I don't think, you know, Metcalf is great. Lockett's great. No fans is a, is a big uh, acquisition for them, but with a quarterback like Locke, I just don't think it matters. So um, they're in a tough spot because I don't think they can use Lockett 
like it's it's not great for Metcalf's interest that this is how it's setting up either. But like Metcalf can be the the one wide receiver, you know, like he can he can take up that that vertical you know post off of a play action threat kind of role, and they can just try to feed him almost like the the way the Titans do AJ Brown really. Um, but Lockett, it's like he he's not the guy you can just throw it up to. He's not going to just out uh, athlete, you know. He's not going to just push around everybody because he's only like 5'10", 180. And, and uh, you know, he, he was running that 4'4", like eight years ago or whatever, but he's probably not running quite that now. You need an accurate quarterback to make a player like Lockett productive, even though Lockett is clearly a very good receiver. Like Drew Lock can make him bad. So they kind of need to get rid of Lockett, but their contract really does not help for that. Like he's, they, they if they move him, they're going to have to maybe pay another team to take his contract, or they're just going to have to eat all of that and all for like maybe a fourth round pick. So it's like they can't move him. Uh, Metcalf is too valuable to move. Uh, but that's, you know, that's that's the the thing that I could imagine changing from this point is like they, they have a redundancy at this point with Lockett, given their inability to th- function as a passing game. And um, yeah, yeah, he can't really be moved. So we'll see. Maybe they can come up with something. Uh, I actually, I'd be surprised if Metcalf moves, even though I'm making it sound like it's it's almost impossible for Lockett. It's like, I'd still be more surprised about Metcalf. Okay. All right. That, that definitely checks out. And then, you know, looking ahead a little bit further, fantasy, fantasy angle when it, when it comes to Metcalf. So his ADP over on the NFC, um, dating back to the 1st of March, so a little bit, so a little bit of pre Russell Wilson trade is baked into this. Um, but his ADP is thirtieth. Uh, the highest he was taken in that time over the last month was sixteen. That that must have been pre Russ. The latest he's gone is fifty third overall, which I think is a little bit more telling um, as far as where the fantasy market is on on him. So is Metcalf like someone that you would target in the fourth round? You know, other receivers going in that same. Window, Deontay Johnson, T. Higgins, Keenan Allen, uh, those type of guys, like how would you power rank them? So in PPR scoring like NFFC, I could imagine Metcalf sliding maybe even a little bit more yet because you look at some of the names around 53 and higher, it's like 54 is Elijah Moore. Um, I know they're, they're probably a couple tiers apart in most people's rankings, but I think Moore clearly profiles as like a 100 catch receiver pretty soon in the NFL. So uh, it's not a slam dunk to me that I put Metcalf over him. Uh, Amon Ross St. Brown at 51. Uh, I'm a little worried that the Hawkinson injury played a pretty crucial role in St. Brown breaking out, but he's good. Like there's, there's no question about that. And, and in PPR, importantly, you know, he, he projects to pile up a lot of catches like Amon Ross St. Brown could catch 90 passes and have a bad year. And uh, Metcalf, it might be called a good year if he gets to 75 with this kind of offense that he's setting up in. So it's really not easy, in my opinion, to make like the, you know, the really slam dunk affirmative case for DK Metcalf, even at this uh, deflated price, because it's like those two guys, DJ Moore, Terry McLaurin, I guess, uh, I guess we're seeing a general theme there of like talented receivers with terrible quarterbacks. And uh, that that's certainly that certainly fits the definition with Metcalf's case right now. Um, but his problem is I think he, even before, you know, generally projects better in like standard scoring and half point PPR because he is that big play touchdown guy and not a target volume guy. So um, in NFFC, it, it might be surprisingly hard to to get value from him. And so I, I guess rounding it out there, 
Like, do, do you think that there, there could be a certain point uh, as drafts start to, you know, heat up, we get a, a larger sample of ADP and all, and all that, where you might think that there there's good reason to like steer into the skid with, with Metcalf. Like if, you know, say an Elijah Moore or someone like that, it is like reliably going ahead of him. Like, it, is it something where you might just pivot and just bet on the talent, you know, kind of being able to overcome the, the otherwise unfortunate circumstances in Seattle? Yeah, I mean, it's. I guess it's worth thinking, too, about, especially if they do move Lockett, maybe there's a scenario where, uh, you know, he maybe he has by far the least efficient season of his career. Maybe it's something just ugly as hell, like, you know, 6.8 yards per target on a 60% catch rate or something. But maybe, especially if the, the defense is as bad as I'm worried it might be, maybe they actually will throw you know, 36 passes a game just because they really do fall behind that quickly. And if they throw 36 passes and then Lockett's not on the team, then DK Metcalf could push for like, you know, 12 plus targets a game. And if you're talking that kind of target volume, when that right there, you know, that, that uh satisfies the concern about like, well, what is this big play touchdown receiver going to do now that he's in an offense with no yards or touchdowns? It's like, well, if he's catching eight, nine passes, that'll do the trick. Exactly. Yeah. That, that smooths over the difference for sure. And then looking at the draft board, um, obviously that they're still paying a little bit off of from the Jamal Adams trade. Uh, the Jets own that pick at, at number 10, but with the Russ trade, Seattle's now picking at nine. You talked about how, you know, dire that situation is on defense. If Malik Willis is, is off the board by that by that point, do you think that the Seahawks go after someone? I'm trying to think of, of someone that Kenny might Pickett. fit. Uh, I don't think it's going to be Kenny Pickett. Or, yeah, I don't you either. know, I, I hope for. I think he'll go to like the Panthers or something horrifying like that. Oh boy. Yeah. That, that just smells like another like four bad years for, for Carolina, like the. Um, oh, yeah. Punks it's gonna, Bills it's not getting better. Here. No, no. Bad, bad. But. What do you think about like Kyle Hamilton go, going to uh, Seattle? He feels like he's just like that Pete Carroll type of like a, a, a someone who's kind of a prospect of his own. Like, it, you know, you don't really see players as big as Hamilton and as fast as Hamilton playing the position that he does and with the versatility that he has. I know he didn't completely crush the combine like a lot of people were expecting, but film's really strong on him. I think he will be there at nine. Do you think he's an option? You'll have to forgive me. I actually haven't looked at Hamilton. Uh, I haven't looked at the defenders beyond like uh, basically the ones that people are talking about in the top. My guy Trayvon. What's that? My guy Trayvon. Yeah, I'm. I, I actually am surprisingly high on him. I'm. I, I know that. Uh, this is, I, I've been cursed to. Uh, like I'm doomed now. I don't know what I did. Something. Something happened, and I, <laughs> I spun this like fate timeline where I'm cursed to forever praise everything Trent Balky does from now on, apparently. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think um, it, it's been talking about how he might take Walker first overall, and people are like, you cannot do that. There's Hutchinson there. How can you do that? And I'm like, I actually think it's kind of a good idea. Like, it's it's like bordering on, you know, the Mario Williams kind of logic, where uh, it's like, it, he was a more extreme case yet, probably. Like, Mario Williams was insane. He was like, if if DeForest Buckner ran a four seven, you know, just, just something that inconceivable like that, that's not what Walker is, but Walker is um, so athletic, you know, running a four, five, one at two seventy or whatever. And, and a big frame all around already very developed at like setting the anchor, setting the edge. So 
Uh, when you're that big and fast and you're really good at playing, you know, violent game of, you know, setting the anchor in the trenches, uh, doing a lot of two gap stuff also, it's like, that's that's just a wrecking ball. That's like Cam Jordan, worst case, not worst case, but like that's a very similar profile to what Cam Jordan had coming out of California. Uh, so it's it's very easy to imagine how Walker could be a really good player in the NFL because Jordan has all the same traits basically. With with Hutchinson, you know, he's six seven, two sixty, and he's got short arms. Now he's probably good. He could be very good. Uh, he could just be the first really good player of his body type but he would be the first good player of his body type. So there, there is more projection with Hutchinson than with Walker. And, and it's, it's not like more risky to go with Walker. In my opinion, it's just not as trendy. So um, if, yeah, if bulky takes Walker, I'll be the only person on earth defending that pick probably, which just, <laughs> it's not where I thought I'd be. Yeah, you know, I thought, that really I thought, is like a, an odd twist of fate that, that, that landed you there. <laughs> it's ridiculous, yeah. man. You have to do the, the the gif of the guy you know unsheathing the sword while the cavalry's coming at him and, and uh, yeah, yeah I'm doing good. it all for bulky unbelievable that's what, what it, that's what it's all for apparently the turn of events um, sticking at, at edge for a second before we move on to our next team James wants to know or chimes in saying Kavon is going to be a bust mark my words um I I mean it's I like cool them, I like cool. the, oh sorry what like things have cooled on him. Like, you know, we, we've seen, we saw all of, all of around this time last year, any like look ahead mocks for 2022. If you didn't have Thibodeau, you were nuts and, and you were just trying to be contrarian because, you know, like you have five-star talent, uh, pretty dominant performance pretty much throughout his first two years at Oregon. He was fine this past year. His best year was injuries. his freshman year. That's true. That's true. Um, I don't so, even mean that as a bad thing. That's just, that's impressive to be, you know, as good as he is that early, uh, mm-hmm. no matter what you know otherwise, that's impressive. And then what you know otherwise is he's one of the best athletes of a 250-pound kind of frame in, in recent drafts. So, like, I, I like Thibodeau quite a bit. And I, I know you're probably going to see some people trying to compare him to, like, Dante Fowler or something by in, mm-hmm. the, in the sense of, like, putting him in this category of, like, hyped, uh, you know, high draft pick from a big school who was kind of inconsistent and, uh, you know, with with the implication of like, oh, Andy's kind of a bad guy too. Oh. <laughs> I don't buy that at all. Thibodeau might be a little eccentric or something, but he's not like Fowler is a total psycho. Uh, and and Thibodeau just seems like he's, you know, you know, he's like a fun, you know, maybe like a Michael Bennett kind of personality, but not, you know, not that other nasty stuff. Yeah. I just think that when, when someone like a Thibodeau has been in the limelight, as long as he has kind of like the, you know, when he signed at Oregon, the sense is like this is a future number one overall pick. That that's a lot of weight to carry for three oh, years. Yeah. You know, yeah, especially so, two two years plus that you have to do that, knowing like you're not going to get paid for any of it. Like, I'm sorry, I just I can really imagine uh, him looking all of a sudden a lot better in the NFL than he did the last two years at Oregon, just because it's like uh, I don't know, it's, it's, it's it it could just at the very least make him look more like he did his true freshman year. And I think some people like hold it. There's like a punitive element to the to the evaluation of him that a lot of people carry where they're like well you you just got to be better than your freshman year I'm like why his freshman year he was already looking good enough to go like first overall i think that's good enough right exactly so so yeah people people need to kind of recontextualize some of those things like if someone is crushing it as a freshman like that's not a mark against them if anything it's it's but, quite the opposite 
but Thibodeau, more importantly for me, he's he's a different position than Walker and Hutchinson. Like he's he's a three four outside linebacker type. He's not a four three uh, defensive end like Hutchinson and uh, Walker are. Yeah, that that makes sense too. So he'll have to go to a ski, uh, a team that that um, you know can can utilize that type of position, that type of frame. Uh, before we get on over to our next team, we got a message from our friends over at Blue Wire. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You also got a message from our friends over at WinBet. WinBet is now the exclusive sponsor for RotoWire's Fantasy Podcast. WinBet brings you all the latest action with a user-friendly interface, money line bets, boosted parlays, over-unders, round robins, live betting, and so much more at your fingertips. Want a break from sports betting? Head into WinBet's digital casino and take a spin on roulette, double down on blackjack, slam the slots, or try your hand at Baccarat. WinBet is currently available in nine states as Arizona, Colorado, Indiana, Louisiana, Michigan, New Jersey, New York, Tennessee, and Virginia, while rapidly expanding. At WinBet, the possibilities are limitless. Register for WinBet today, make a qualifying deposit, and wager to receive $200 in free bets. Promotions may vary by state. Download WinBet now. That's W-Y-N-N-B-E-T. WinBet, the exclusive partner for RotoWire's Fantasy Podcast. Let's get on over to our next team. I want to talk about the Bears a little bit. Obviously, they, they lose Khalil Mack. They, they have a coaching change. I don't know off the top of my head what, what their cap situation has been, and maybe that kind of informs the way that they've approached free agency. But you, you kind of would have thought that they would have done a little bit more to build around Justin Fields heading into his second season. Yeah, it's uh, it's a little disappointing. Like even as someone who's not really like a field super fan or anything, like I think he's I think he's a really good prospect. I'm not I'm not like one of his biggest fans or anything, but it's still frustrating to look at the Bears and you know it'd be one thing if they're going to go into this year and keep his exposure limited by running the ball a lot and keeping pressure off of him, but you know more likely it's going to be that they're going to get to the you know second half of most games and. They'll be down maybe a little, maybe a lot by then, but they're going to make fields throw the ball a bunch and behind like an offensive line that isn't that good with uh, pass catchers who aren't very good. And if he struggles, there's going to be all this like, oh, why, why didn't he do better? You know, and it's like, who would you expect to do well with this? I, I, I'm not saying that he's good. I'm saying we can't know whether he is when you're giving him these players to work with. So I I don't want to. I don't want to be too uh, pessimistic. And there's there's still time for them to to change things a little bit. 
Um, it's not nothing to have Mooney and Cole commit, in my opinion. Like I know a lot of people think commit is just a bum, but um, I think he can still become good. Like he definitely hasn't been productive to this point, but I think he could be good uh, if they're okay with him just being like a Martellus Bennett kind of player. I think he can still become that. Uh, I like Mooney quite a bit. I even like Pringle over Robinson in the sense that uh, that's a that's a better speed threat right there. And if if you're going to capitalize on on the space that Pringle creates that Robinson maybe didn't uh, by running effectively, then that that makes more sense to me. Um, but Pringle is not a serious target volume candidate. You know, if they're gonna if they're gonna put Fields out there and make him throw you know seven eight targets a game to Pringle, that's just that's just forcing fields to do poorly. I think like Pringle can be effective if he's not uh, like your central target. If you're, if you're letting him make those corners run downfield with him and, 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 you know, wear them out a little bit, create some space for things underneath, take the occasional deep shot, ideally off of play action where that, that was so, that was where Pringle was so good at Kansas state was just playing, you know, in that option offense, they chuck it downfield like six times a game and he'd catch three, for a hundred yards, you know, that's, that's how he played. He wasn't playing like they used him with the chiefs. So I like him in that, that role, but he can only thrive in that role and fields can only thrive as a quarterback in an offense like that. If you have someone else picking up the slack, cause there's still slack. Like you, you make the offense faster going from Robinson to Pringle, but you have unaccounted for targets that if you don't account for them, you're sort of just leaving a leak in the boat. Yeah. So, so that needs to get sutured up. How much does, the Bears not having their first round pick, that would have been the seventh pick. Uh, how much does that sting? <laughs> um, it, it stings pretty good, John. Uh, they, yeah, I mean, you, you could even have rationalized their offseason normally by saying, hey, well, maybe they'll get the top receiver. Maybe they'll, maybe they'll trade back from that really high pick and get a bunch of helpful pieces for Justin Fields. And it's just, neither of those is a possibility. And in the, in the meantime, yeah. You have your second leading projected target as uh, either Montgomery or Byron Pringle or Komet. So uh, I don't know what they can do in the second round. I mean, I guess that's going to be the 39th pick. I guess I'll say if somehow Olave is there, that would be pretty amazing and the kind of lucky pick that would make them, I think, a lot better than they basically deserve to be. But I don't really expect Olave to get there. And there's a good player there, but you're, you're talking more realistically like a Jahan Dotson or something. And yep. that, that would help. They, they can, they need to take all the help they can get, but that's not who you want to build on. Not at this point, not for a quarterback who needs as much help as fields. No, exactly. So yeah, that it's definitely not a finished product there. And, you know, they might still be you know, over a year away from, from like truly kind of clicking into, you know, what, what we'll consider, you know, the Justin Fields era, because, you know, I, I don't think that they have the pieces right now to, to really take off, even in, a, you know, what is a weakened uh, overall NFC. Uh, can you hear me all right? Yeah. Yeah, sorry. Oh, uh, my right. bad. <laughs> yep, I was not, at all. Stuff. not at all. Um, let's, uh, let's stick in the NFC North. Let's talk about the Packers' path forward. Uh, we, we, you know, broke down the Devontae Adams trade and, you know, what that means to uh, Las Vegas a couple weeks back, but you know the Packers are sitting here now with some pretty interesting draft capital. You know, it, uh, you know, opposite side of the spectrum from where the Bears are, where they now have the 22nd and the 28th picks in the first round. Obviously, receiver is this huge glaring need for them now. It's a good year to, if you're going to have a glaring need like that, it's a good year for it because there's just so many 
options you can go with at receiver. Do you think that they stand pat and make both of those selections? Do they use both of them on a receiver? Do they package that those picks to, to move up even further on someone that they're like totally sold on? How do you see the Packers approaching the draft in regards to, you know, not, not replacing Devontae Adams, but trying to fill out that, that, uh, that receiving core? Yeah, they have quite a few picks. Uh, like they have two second rounders as well, two fourth rounders. So they could draft two receivers in the first, like, I don't know, two rounds, I guess. Uh, I don't think they'll take two in the first round, but they could. I mean, if, if you're the Packers, uh, granted, it would be a little unorthodox to do this, but how could you feel bad if you're the Packers and you turn the 22nd pick and the 28th pick into like Olave and Traylon Burks or something like with, it would be unusual, especially for a team trying to win a Super Bowl. But why would you feel bad about doing that? Especially when uh, you know cornerback is more or less accounted for for them. Uh, yeah, but cornerbacks accounted for safeties accounted for. They just paid Devondre Campbell at linebackers or linebackers accounted for. Don't think the defensive line needs anything. Uh, the offensive line seems fine. Like where are they even going to spend picks other than receiver? You know, it's like, I, I, I kind of hope they do take two first round receivers. Cause I, I think it's, it's like you said, it's a good draft to take first round receivers, especially in the late, you know, half of the first uh, round. Yeah, when you break it down the way that you did, looking at the levels of the defense and, you know, the offensive line still strong, they really didn't even have Bakhtiari for, for the majority of last season also. So you can kind of view him as like a nice little addition that you can pencil in as well at tackle. So, yeah, they're almost hemmed in to, to going receiver. They they obviously, you know, they drafted A.J. Dillon a couple of years back. They, they still have Aaron Jones. So, yeah, I you know, Robert Tunyon coming back. I mean, I don't think that there's a tight end that's even close really to, to being worthy of either of those guys. So, oh man, I, I think they do have to go receiver. So that this is kind of an exciting draft if you're a Packers fan. Um, yeah. And I think they'll want, too. I think they'll want speed, especially because I like Lazard quite a bit, but you know, he, he runs like a four five five. He's, he's your glue guy. He's, he's lining up wherever you need someone to line up and he's doing a pretty good job but he's not running past anybody and neither is Amari Rogers or you know, Cobb. So they might want to get like Olave and someone else who can really run because I think Lazard can be good enough, you know, but he needs space created and, and he's not going to create it himself. Do you think Pickens would be a fit for them? Yeah. Especially if they're waiting till the second, I don't think they should go into the second round with zero receivers picked, but if they're picking like one in the first round or for some reason, if they are just waiting until the second Pickens would make a lot of sense there. I, I still like him quite a bit. Um, like his production, that true freshman year is the kind that I, it's just, at least in, when you're talking sec, it's like almost inconceivable for a player to do that and then not be a viable, you know, at least wide receiver three in the NFL. So I'm hoping that he can keep developing and he is young, you know, he's, he's an underclassman. Uh, he could still get a little better yet and kind of like, you know, become what you would project ha- him to been after that freshman year. But running the four, four, seven at like 195 pounds, wasn't exactly what I wanted to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it doesn't make him a bad prospect by, by any means. It's just that I thought if he had tested well, and by that, I mean, like, I wanted him to be like at least 10 pounds heavier, ideally 15 more pounds and uh, still run the same 40 timer a little bit better. 
So if he had, though, then he would have been like potentially the wide receiver one to me. So that's that's what it, that's the the significance of it to me that, you know, I say he, he disappointed at the combine, but it's it's because I had really high hopes for him. Uh, so if, if he's in the second, uh, he's definitely a good outside receiver. Uh, he can play the, you know, the part of the field that Lazard can't, even if he's not specifically the kind of fast that makes the safety run with him every play. Yeah, no, I, th- I think he can get it done. I think he has enough speed. I think you, you bring up your points are well take, taken on, on the kind of like tall, skinny frame. Um, but yeah, I, I watched Pickens very closely for three years at Georgia, really 2.25 years. Um, but, you know, I, that guy, he's different. Like, he's- like the absolute worst case scenario should be a better version of Josh Reynolds, but I'm definitely, you know, not thinking the worst case scenario either. No, it, oh. I would be bummed out if he turns into somehow like slightly better Josh Reynolds. I think that there's, there's gotta be more. The worst case, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So fair, fair. Josh Reynolds is still playing. It really, it really can. Um, Speaking of things getting really bad, why don't we switch things over to some draft picks, draft selections, draft prospects that are sliding a little bit in lieu of the combine and with pro days. And I think that the first guy that, that comes to mind for me is Purdue's David Bell. I think if we were talking two months ago, we're saying that, you know, he he's he's the guy that if you don't get Traylon Burks or one of the Ohio State guys, he's someone that that could be worthwhile if you're picking in the 20s. He has since pretty much tanked his stock entirely. It was a, a horrendous workout at the Combine. And then somehow, inexplicably, I don't know if they grow the, the turf tall at, at the Purdue in, indoor practice <laughs> facility, but... Even worse at at, uh, at Purdue's pro day yesterday, like it ran a four seven one official. <laughs> they have a they have a marsh for their uh, track <laughs> program. Um, I think um, Bell's a tough one because he has to be useful in some capacity in the NFL. Like the absolute absolute worst case scenario for him, I think would uh, I don't know, almost like Jason Avant or something like Here, that. I, but, I got one for you. Is he Nelson Spruce? No, I don't think so. So the reason Bell still seems to me like a distinctly good prospect, even with these bad numbers, um, it's a little bit like you need the, you know, the full context, the the perspective, kind of like with the Pickens case. It's that we were hoping that David Bell could be a first round prospect. Like, so if he's, if he misses that mark somehow, the fact that we were, you know, approximating like a, a, a point rather high, a high standard first round means we can only let them fall so far from there, I think. And for me, the absolute farthest I'm willing to consider, I guess, is like the fourth round. But I think there's still a really good case for him to go on day two. There's there's cases like Juju Smith-Schuster. I mean, it wasn't quite this bad. I mean, he, he ran like a 4-5-6 or 4-5-4, I want to say. Yeah. Uh, Devontae Adams had a 4-5-6 at, at a pretty much the same height and weight. Um so it's it's not like uh, you need to be a great athlete at, at that kind of build to to be a good NFL receiver. Um, but yeah, not not having any better than a four six five, it makes it seem rather unlikely that he becomes like the star kind of player we had hoped for. Like he could he could still be a totally good uh, starting receiver in the NFL and still not as good as people got their hopes up for a few years ago. You know, he showed up to Purdue and basically you know started holding serve against Rondale Moore. Uh, those three years, he had super high uh, volume of production, certainly pretty high shares of production in the Purdue offense. 
and the efficiency was always over the top too. He was always above baseline, you know, soundly. So I think as much as there are worst case scenarios like his, like dominant college receivers who are pretty big and test slowly, you know, disappointing in the NFL, there's, there are worst case scenarios like Treadwell, Tyler Johnson, uh, I don't know, somebody else like that, but uh, Calvin Harmon, I guess, but um, because Bell was so productive, both in volume and efficiency senses so early, including his true freshman year, I, I think that's that that's just that's the point at which like he's definitely a little different than the other cases because uh, mm-hmm. like, even Harmon, I mean, I think he had like 500 yards his freshman year or something, which is totally good, uh, but it's not it's not putting up you know one third of Purdue's uh, volume at a higher catch rate and higher per target number than the rest of the offense. Right, exactly, and you know Purdue was throwing it a ton. Like he had to take on su- like such a high like per game volume, and he still w- was you know extremely productive. Like you said, just from the jump, really. So um, yeah, I'm not ready to, to you know jump ship on him. You know, a guy who caught 86 passes as a true freshman while, while playing alongside Rondale Moore. Yeah, I'm not ready to jump ship. I, I just I think you're right where you just kind of need to reframe where your initial expectations were. And you, you can't completely ditch them in in, in results of you know like, just, uh, some, some bad workouts. Cephas has looked pretty good, I think, with the Lions and you know Bell. Whatever he has going wrong for him, it's not nearly as bad as in the Cephas case. And he was a better player in the Big Ten. So yeah, fourth round I think is the absolute like doomsday extent for for Bell. But I I, I can imagine a smart team still taking him in the top seventy five or something. Where would he compare to you for with like a like from last year like a Tylen Wallace? So he was like a day three guy. Huh. I know they're not the yeah, same that's an interesting one because they they are the same category as far as like very early production, super productive players in college who just kind of lacked the athletic testing to to grade as well in the NFL as they did in college. We don't know what's going to happen with Wallace. I mean, I I don't know what to expect there. I, I still have hope for him because not many players produce like him and his workout numbers weren't bad or anything. They just, they just weren't good in a strong class. Um, I guess one difference is Tylon Wallace was skinny and uh, injury prone kind of there. There was some concern yeah. about his knee. I don't think there's any concerns about bell, right? Like he's no. He's, so, um, you know, he's a big slowish receiver instead of a, you know, skinny, not fast receiver like Wallace. I guess I, I would imagine that Bell's category is more valued by the NFL because with Wallace, it's like if you're giving up the size to to push around people in the run game as a blocker, you generally want to get plus speed to, to kind of mm-hmm. offset the concession there. And Wallace doesn't really give you either. So he needs to get just middle of the field kind of usage and, and at a decent volume to, to pay off. Uh, Cause otherwise it's just, it's really hard to see how he's contributing. Whereas with Bell, you can put him out there and, you know, just run the ball comfortably knowing that he's six one two fifteen and and got the weight on almost any corner he lines up against. So it, in terms of, I know that the, these two aren't the same player and, and the way that this guy's rookie year went relative to where he went in the draft is, is so, I mean, there's such a wide gulf there of unexpected or of it being unexpected, but do you think that David Bell could be like this year's Amon Ross St. Brown? He could be, um, yeah, because uh, I guess he, he probably wouldn't line up at the same part of the field. I guess he could do some big slot stuff with Bell. Uh, I wouldn't want Bell in the slot unless I was on a short field, maybe in the red zone. But he, uh, I don't know, I'm, try- I'm trying to think of like a really 
direct uh, good case scenario version of Bell. And uh, I can't really think of anything other than Smith Schuster, which isn't quite on the mark. But um, I do think Bell's working with a similar sort of capital. You know, it's like if when you produce the way he did at Purdue, it, it does get. I mean, it's arguably better production than what St. Brown had at USC. I don't really have a position there. I, th- I thought St. Brown was awesome at USC, so I don't know how much better he could have possibly done. But you could make the case that Bell's is even better. And when you're two thirteen or sorry, two fifteen and running a four six five, that's better than being St. Brown's weight, like one ninety five or whatever, and still running a four six. So uh, St. Brown, I think can at once be very good and, and also kind of like an aberration. And I, I think Bell conventionally projects a little safer, like, uh, yeah, especially when the guys like Fitzpatrick and Josh Palmer are going like Fitzpatrick would, was a mistake, obviously. Uh, I, I think Bell is better than Palmer pretty easily. Okay. All right. So the, it's good to, to, you know, take some recent draft comparisons to, to kind of like give, give a, a, a you know, what, a little preview of what things might look like. I guess uh, next level. a person could try to argue that an Allen Robinson comparison, but uh, I, I think he's short of that. You know, that's like, that's the unrealistic best case and, and uh, he won't quite reach it, but there's his range of outcomes is still above the, the range that you would normally be concerned in my opinion. Like I, I think he's, he's, he's got some amount of security, even if it seems like he's free falling. Okay. Yeah. It's good to, to like talk this out a little bit more because I think like pretty much all the discourse on, on Twitter yesterday and this morning was just like David Bell is he's, he's done. It's over. Uh, yeah. The, it's weird to care about the pro day time, you know, cause like he already ran at the combine. Now it would have been one thing if he was, and this is a weird case. It would have been one thing if he was a Devin Funches case running a four, seven at the combine and, it was clearly like a, a form issue. And then at the pro day, he ran a four or five flat. Uh, that's the only time you should really care about a pro day time being different when it, when it's like so jarringly obvious or like they were hurt the first time or something like that. Um, but when we have the four, six, five at the combine, we don't need to be like, Oh, I guess he runs a four, seven, three now. Cause he ran it in the rain at Purdue's uh, water park uh, track. <laughs> hey, it didn't stop uh, Raheem Mostert way back when. Yeah, you can imagine this. No one's keeping track, or I haven't seen a reliable record of where people are running these things nowadays. Like, we've got like 20 years of data from pro days, and these locations must have changed at some points. And so, you got a bunch of times, especially probably from like 15, 20 years ago or something, on a track, like the actual track where they have a rubber floor. And then you got cases like this one where they're running outside. Um, it's it's kind of it's kind of hard to make any like truly conclusive determinations based on that when we, we we're just not uh what is that called? We're not like standardizing the data, you know? Right. Because, you know, like there, there's been a huge proliferation in college football of building these indoor practice facilities and they're all super nice. Everyone's trying to outdo the, the, the one prior or the, the last team that, that just upgraded their facilities. But yeah, it, it doesn't lead to there being any sort of uniformity as far as what we can expect from, from these pro day tests. So what, like you said, when there's like a huge chasm between uh, pro day and, and combine, then you can take a look. Uh, but otherwise, like if someone is just like 0.05 better in the 40 at their pro day, it generally doesn't really change a whole lot. Right. Um, so yeah, with Bell, it's like, you know, a year ago, two years ago, we were hoping he could be whatever the wide receiver one in the class. And, and now 
we we can't reasonably hope for that, but it, it also would be unreasonable, I think, to to assume he's toast. Yeah, I think so too. So that's good. That's good to um to you know to not overreact to to the these recent uh, you know testing times and, and you know look at the broader picture of and why we all thought that David Bell was as good as he was uh, just a month and a half ago, something like that. Um, I want to round it out with one more guy. I know we've talked about him a, a decent bit, but where do you, where in your mind is Traylon Burks? Where is his stock heading? Because it, it felt like he was, uh, if you weren't saying he's wide receiver one going into the combine, then, then you were crazy. And all those people, I think, have seemingly deleted their tweets. Can't find any Traylon Burks hype anywhere, seemingly, these days. Is he at risk of falling out of the first round, or is he just going to be a first rounder that that instead of being top fifteen is closer to like the twenty fifth to the thirty second? I don't think he's at any risk of falling out of that first tier at receiver. But the difference going into the combine was that we were hopeful that he would be the first tier that he would test so similarly to AJ Brown, you know, namely just being a two twenty five plus receiver who can break the four five threshold. If he could have done that, and you supplement, you know those those athletic metrics to his to his uh, production at Arkansas, that would have made him a slam dunk prospect. Like it, it would have been just bewildering if if he had those things true about him, and he still failed in the NFL, uh, even as the first wide receiver picked in any given draft. So that was a high bar we had in mind, and a four five five forty that certainly falls short of it, but it falls short in a way that takes him out of contention of the first top 10, top eight picks and just more like, yeah, now you're going in the, you know, 15, 25 or something like that. And he could fall further than that, but I think it would just be the result of being in that tier with a handful of other very qualified receivers too. Like it could have just been like, everybody loves Trey Bur- uh, Traylon Burks in the first, uh, or sorry, from picks like 15 to 32, but maybe he still falls to 35 because those teams there just happen to be going after Olave and Jamison Williams and I don't know, something else that surprises us or something. Uh, there's a lot of competition in the part of the draft where he seems first right. a candidate to go off the board. So he, he could just kind of get the bad luck on that one and just slide into the forties or something, but it, I don't think it would be a reflection of anything really. Do you think that, you know, as far as his skill set and, and, you know, he's a pretty unique guy, of course, you know, you, you don't really see receivers with, with that type of frame. And, you know, even if it's not the craziest athleticism, still good athleticism. Do you think that he has like any sort of like scheme limitations? Like, can he only do this? Can he only do that? Or, or does, do you think that in addition to all that, he has like a fairly, you know, complete, you know, tool set as far as, you know, playing the position? Right. Uh, part of why I'm still high on him is that if you think through actual wide receiver tasks, the tasks that he's likely to, to be a candidate for, it, you don't really look at those, see a spot where you worry about him. You, you maybe don't get your hopes quite as high as before. You don't have visions of him, you know, burning defense after defense for 80 yards after, you know, the catch pretty much every time. Like you give that up, but you can still imagine a player who catches a hundred passes just, you know, averaging 12 and a half yards a catch instead of 15 and a half or something, you know, it's like, he could still be a very good player. And part of why it's, it's easy to, to keep that perspective, I think is that this is what, this is so uh, good about mock draftable. So they give you the visualization, you know, the percentiles, and you can really kind of look at it and see it in a tangible way that you, you maybe wouldn't have been able to 
quite conceptualize on your own, just imagining. And you go to Traylon Burks's page and it's pretty, it's pretty difficult to miss how his weight at 93rd percentile is basically to say like, he's as heavy as pretty much any receiver. And that's true. Even though he's not as tall as any receiver, he's tall, but six two. Uh, so he's 67th percentile height with 93rd percentile weight. That's awesome density. That's like workhorse density. That's you can play in traffic, no problem kind of thing. So we, we can only really rule out Burks being like a, a vertical threat in the sense of like pulling the safeties with him for speed reasons, but he's 225 pounds. So he can play, you know, he can, he can play boxing out if he needs to, he's got the wingspan, uh, totally able to play in traffic. So I think that he can still make an impact downfield, even with a four, five, five, because he can, you know, he's, he's working with rebounding ability that the corners aren't, those corners can run, uh, they can catch up with him if he runs past them perhaps, but they can't necessarily play with him above the rim. Uh, so I think and they might not be able to tackle him either. We saw a right, lot that's of the that. thing. So if they want to play with a cushion against him, you get him an underneath target. They don't play with a cushion against him anymore. And if they're playing too aggressive with the press, he might, you know, toss the guy aside and get a free <laughs> route down the sideline. So there's just a lot of ways you can imagine Burks hurting a defense with a four five five, even if it's not, you know, quite the all pro visions that you would have had if you're in a four three eight or whatever. All right. Very good. All right. That's a, that's a good re- reframing on Burks. I think that's going to do it for us here on this edition of the Rotowire Fantasy Football Podcast. Again, brought to you by our friends over at WinBet. For Mario Puig, I'm John McKechnie. Thanks for listening. Try Rotowire today, free for 10 days. Get our premium tools, rankings, analysis, and breaking news alerts. No credit card required. Go to rotowire.com forward slash 